0: <clears throat> All right. Good to be with you guys. As Cole said, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Mariners. It is good to be with you. Um, obviously, there's a lot. It's a little bit more packed in than, than, than a little bit easier because we got a lot of elementary school kids in here who are hanging out today. One of them has a sparkly hat over there, which is just awesome. So uh, she doesn't know I'm talking about her yet, but that's awesome. Um, if you have a sparkly hat on, great. Um, just you. Everybody else, you know, they didn't really show any enthusiasm. So thank you for wearing that. Um, really good to be with you guys. We are um, in the second week of a series called "A uh, Life of Adventure," and uh, uh, last week we kicked it off talking about how God is unpredictable. That while we might want Him to be predictable and sort of uh, sort of fit into a sort of a regular schedule, sort of programming, He doesn't always tend to do that. And I encourage you, if you haven't yet listened to it or you weren't here last week, to, to download the message. It's a, you know we have a podcast there's all the stuff available. You can listen to it as well. Um, but we're in the second week of that series. And before we kind of jump into this sort of adventurous faith kind of message, um, would you do this with me? Would you, um, would you pray with me? So would you just close your eyes for just a moment if that's what you do when you pray? But would you just pause? So um, just take a moment. Lord Jesus, we are aware that there are many things that we make sacred. We make spaces sacred, set apart for you. We make different things, um, practices And so in this moment, we make this time set apart, and we pause. We acknowledge our inability to produce things in this time, and we come before you and ask that you would speak to us. Jesus, for those of us in this room who are in need of comfort would you reveal yourself in the form of comfort? Would, for those of us in this room who are in need of peace, would you bring about peace? God, in, in all of our own situations, God, today, would you meet us here? Through prayer, through our response in singing, and through your own word. And Jesus, we ask that you would make yourself known to those who would seek you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, right about, I would say, right around, oh, by the way, I should say this. There are people who will pass you a Bible if you need one. They're, they're um, heavily laden people carrying 12 to 15 Bibles. And if you want to relieve some of their work, you can just take one from them. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, like, you, do not, you don't own one, and you're like, where do I get a Bible? I don't know where Bibles are. How You know, they don't have them at, you know... Where do I go? You don't know, have them at Target, or I don't, I don't. Maybe they do have them at Target. But if you need one, you can steal one of ours, and we'll just assume that's that. You know, you don't have seven of those at home. <laughs> like, yes, my complete collection's almost complete. You know, um, like one for every place setting or something. But um, if you need a Bible, take one. Just consider it a gift to you. Um, and if you have more at your home, just go ahead and feel those, bring those back. I mean, just pass them out next week if you got seven of them. Um, Okay, well, right about, I was going to say this, right about sort of, uh, I'd say probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, we start wrestling with the question, which is, am I normal? (laughs) I mean, up until then, you don't really wrestle with it. I have three little kids, and they're not yet worried about, am I normal? They, you know, my youngest was given a, um, he has a set of pajamas that are, they're a skeleton that glow in the dark. And he wears that as many days a week as he can, all day. And he's like, hey, have you seen my bones? And he'll, like, take people into the bathroom and close the door and stuff. Like, look, I can glow. It's like, that's great, you know. You know, he's three years old. My daughter will, um, will frequently try to put things on her. Like, she'll have headbands and stuff that are like the, the like, a- antenna, you know, like from a, like a bug costume or something. And she'll have wings on or all these things. We're like, Molly, you, you can't wear that to school. She's just, why? I don't understand why. And it, it kind of, we kind of look at each other like, I don't know why. You just can't, you know. <laughs> And my oldest is, you know, he just, he just, he, if he's wearing clothes, that's like victory, you know? And so he's like, you know, some sort of orange plaid with blue plaid and then a, another plaid on his, a jacket and different matching socks and two different kinds of shoes. And he's like, I'm ready to go. And we're like, again, we're not sure why you're not supposed to look like that. I guess, we kind of look at each other, my wife and I are like, hey, go for it. We don't do that, but, you know, whatever. We're not eight. So, but a little bit older than that, you start asking the question, am I normal? Is my experience of the world the same as other people's? Do I fit into this sort of experience of the world in other people's eyes? Am I crazy? Are they crazy? You know, we start wondering, am I normal? I took a very reliable um, internet survey about whether or not I'm normal. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, it was like 20 questions about sort of thing, past experiences, opinions about stuff, uh, everything from what I eat to... There's one question that I was like, would you rather... <laughs> And again, you don't know how everybody else answers. I don't know what the most normal answer is. But one question was Would you rather gain 150 pounds or get run over by a bus? <laughs> I was like, Ugh. I've always liked the bus. I mean, you know, like, you can't know, <laughs> even answer that question. So <laughs> here are my results. Here's the results. I'll share it. Here's exactly my results. You are 35% normal. <laughs> you sure do march to your own beat, but you're so weird. People wonder if it's a beat at all. (laughs) You think on a totally different wavelength. And it's often a chore to get people to understand you. (laughs) Now, a large part of my job is trying to get people to understand me. (laughs) So, I'm really sorry. I don't know how else to explain that. I mean, uh, I guess I'm exceptional. So, congratulations, you met an exceptional person today. But we, we often wonder the same thing about our relationship with God. Am I, am I normal? I mean, is this the way everybody who talks about Jesus experiences Jesus? Or is, am I like, am I on my own island here? Am I kind of crazy? Or, or are they crazy? Or what is actually normal here? And do people experience, like I do, they have less of the experience of God than I do? They have more, is it different, how does it look? And generally we take cues about our own sort of sense of, are we normal by what people say about their own experience of faith? So, you know, if you're new, like new to church, you know, Christians talk a lot about their personal relationship with God through Jesus. I mean, this is kind of what they talk about. If you ask them about that, they'll say, well, he's always with me and I feel his presence wherever I am and I I talk and he, and he hears me and I'm never alone and we ride tandem bikes together and we take long walks on the beach and, you know, he, you know, like we listen to the same iPod, like two different iPods, you know, buds and we're, we hang out together. Now, I should say this as well. For some of you, this message today will be a huge sigh of relief. Some of you will go, oh my gosh, I'm actually normal. And some of you will go, I don't want to be normal. Some of you will be frustrated today. And I want to tell you, as we talk about a life of adventure, a faith of adventure, there is several components of that faith adventure that are not always comfortable or easy. And this may be one of those moments for you. I came to sort. I met Jesus, so to speak, is the best way to sort of put it. In a youth group, I was. I started hanging out at a youth ministry, and I was about 12 years old. And I started. I got introduced to Jesus, and for a kid who's you know 35% normal, (laughs) Uh, which basically translates to a total nerd. You know, I didn't have a lot of like real meaningful. I was totally insecure about my relationships and friendships and stuff. Exactly the way I felt right there. Exactly. And to hear words like, you'll never feel lonely, you'll never be abandoned, you'll never be alone, that Jesus is always with you was, I mean, I was like this, I, I so desperately need this. And in so many ways, God met me in very real ways at a very young age, at 12, 13 years old, I began to see and experience God in very profound and real and tangible ways. But my experience wasn't always God's comfort. I wasn't always experiencing joy. My experience of things that are kind of fall into the broad category of miraculous you know, wasn't all that common to me. And so when people describe Jesus like he's kind of like a holy snuggie, you know, like he's just super, you slip your hands in, it's just always warm, <laughs> covers your toes, they never even get cold. It's just like, this is kind of the way, it kind of got described to me, and it wasn't my experience. And I began to wonder, am I normal? Normal. But because I had heard Christians talk so much about the experience of the normalness of walking with Jesus, the sort of holy, snuggy kind of Jesus, that maybe I was sort of experiencing something that wasn't actually true. But, but what if, what if I am normal? I mean, what if it's possible that the constant sort of Jesus overwhelming you with his warmth in your face all the time kind of experience isn't actually even described in the Bible? I mean, maybe it's a little different than that. Maybe walking with Jesus is a slightly different experience than that. Maybe it's vastly different. I should, just to, as a point of clarification, we should identify that God is omnipresent, meaning that he is always everywhere present. And we have to use, utilize that term to understand that God is an always present God everywhere. And yet there are other times where God is sort of what we would say manifesting his presence, that his manifest presence is made known in a particular location. In other words, Genesis 3 describes that there's, um, God is walking in the garden. Well, how could a God who's everywhere also be walking? He has to localize his sort of presence. In other words, he manifests himself as walking in the garden. You have God manifesting his presence in a burning bush. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, you have him manifesting himself as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and all kinds of ways in which God shows up as a manifest presence, even while also continuing to be everywhere present. Understanding? These are, just, these are two terms we've got to grab onto. Manifest presence and omnipresence. Okay. Is it possible, though, that God's manifest presence is sometimes veiled or hidden from us? Here's what I mean. Turn, you don't have to turn your Bible. I'll just show you really quickly on the screen. Psalm 10 says this. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44, 23. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Why do you hide your face? Isaiah. Isaiah is Isaiah's a prophet speaking on God's behalf, speaking his, God's words to his people, says this. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. You are the God who hides. You might be our Savior, God, but you're also this God who's apparently hiding from us. And I should say that in the context of these, of, of these verses, you don't have a sense that the people are doing crazy, wild things that, would, that are sort of making God run away. That this is just their experience of normal faith. The people are crying out, God, where are you? Are you the God who hides? Now, there are things in which sort of, there's, there's sin issue which can, which can sort of separate us from God in sort of the experience of his presence, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But these people aren't saying their experience isn't one in which they've gone, God, we're running away, and you're not chasing after us. They're simply saying, you're supposed to be right here, and you're not. What's that about? And the burning question is, why? Why wouldn't God want us to experience sort of like the stepping into the jacuzzi of his awesome presence, and it's just sort of warm hotness all around us all the time, the comfort of all? Why doesn't he want us to experience that? Or why don't we? I mean, I, I don't know why in, in, in a lot of ways, but people ask me a lot of times as a pastor, as soon as they find out that I'm a pastor, people, and people are fascinated by this question right here. I didn't know why this mattered. People always ask me, how long does it take you to prep a message, to like put stuff together? And I say, well, I don't, I don't know. I go, it's not like it's the SAT, you know, where you have three hours. I don't know. How long is the SAT now? Is it three, five hours? How long is it? Do you not know? Have people not taking the SAT in this room? Are we worried about the next generation of young learner? <laughs> what, how long is it? Four hours? Okay, so at the end of four hours, you're done with the test. Whether or not you're, or not you're going to Harvard or you're, you know, right here. You know, whatever it is. But you're, <laughs> whatever it is, that's what you got. And the time is up and you're done. Now, there are some people who I know who are pastors who give themselves like a certain time slot and they just commit to that time and they're done. And I've tried this before. But my experience goes a little bit like this. I'm praying that God shows. I'm like, God, please show up. I have a a, a pen and a whiteboard. And my computer is open. And I I have the Bible and some research here. Do your thing. Go. And I'm just trying to, like, write stuff down. And there are times where it's like, I got a Diet Dr. Pepper and a whiteboard and a computer. And I'm like, 20 minutes later, like, nailed it. Walk away, and I feel like my job is so easy. This is so good. It happens like once a year, you know. <laughs> and it's like this is so great. And every time I get to the every other week of the sort of prepping a message, I have the like God, hey, remember? I'm like I'm like on your team, you know. I'm like let's do something here, because I get to the whiteboard and it's like my kids have clearly been in my office and they they've used the tip of the white of the, the whiteboard marker, the the dry erase marker, as like a hammer. So like, there's not even a pen, I'm like, oh, what a- God, come on. And then I- I'm starting to think about it, and I write a draft of a message, and I'm like, that's not sounding good. So I'm on third and fourth drafts, and I'm telling it to my wife, and she's looking at me like, I, I love you, but I don't get it. You know, I'm like, no, no, this isn't happening. And I start to imagine myself sort of, I, I start to catastrophize the whole experience, and I get to this moment right here, and people, they just see, I take, I grab the, mu- the little music stand thing, people look up in my eyes, and they just start shaking their heads, throwing stuff, walking out. I'm chasing people out as their radios are on. I can't hear you. You're talking, but I can't hear you. Driving away. I imagine myself never shaving or never bathing again. I adopt 12 cats and I move to a, a houseboat with other exiled pastors who are abandoned and never really met by God. And then there's this whole... That's kind of how I imagine it in my head. <laughs> I'm like, God's your message. You're, I, I'm trying to say your stuff. Why don't you show up? And I have the experience in much more, more profound ways in my own life, too, as well. I mean, I have the experience of going, God, you're supposed to be the one who's tenderly taking care of your own children, and yet I don't feel you up close. I feel very lonely. I feel very scared. Aren't you supposed to let me know that you're just always here around me? Why does he do this? Let me give you, you know, so we have to we're kind of tread carefully when we start talking about why God does stuff, but I'll, I'll take that risk. Now, some of you guys are, are younger kids in here. You're in elementary school. What you guys don't realize, second through fifth graders, is that when you were a little child, when you were a tiny little person, you, you without without knowing it, um, and I'm going to say a word that's sort of it's sort of banned in your own house, you hated your parents' sleep. <laughs> you hated it, and you didn't even you didn't mean it. You're not going to say the word hate in your house, probably. You know what's kind of a big deal in our house too, but. Parents who are, you know, like new parents, I, there's some of them who are crying in the back there, like parents are crying, not the kids, the parents are crying. Those parents, they all know something, which is those of you who are not married, who are, you're engaged, or you're, you know, you don't have kids yet, or you're married but don't have kids, you don't realize something that they know, is that their kids do hate their sleep. They hate their parents' sleep. And so, what you do is you bring home this sort of bundle of joy, and you have this sort of like, oh my gosh, God is so good. And you have this moment, and this is this miracle. There's our baby. And you get that baby home. And it never wants to rest. And the moment you think you've got it, you put your head down, and it's a screaming match in your face. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I have to live with this forever. Thank you, Jesus. And you. You do everything you can and when the baby's really tiny, you do out, you just kinda you just kinda stack hands and go, all right, mom and dad, we're on the same, we're doing this, and we're gonna make this happen, we'll go we'll do it shifts or whatever else, we're gonna work out a plan and we're gonna just gonna make this happen. And you sort of begin this sort of survival tactic. I did not start drinking coffee until my first child, by the way. <laughs> I'm totally addicted. <laughs> um but you go through this process where you're trying to help the baby begin to start falling asleep on its own, but you're initially you're just holding them all the time, and then finally you, you start trying to figure out how to put the baby down in the crib, which, you know, you're doing this super slow, all parents know this maneuver, where you're trying to place a baby, and the first time you do it, the baby, like, tumbles out of your hands into the thing, <laughs> you know, and, like, you have all this research that you've read that you should never have read about dropping babies and shaking babies and, you know, crib danger and all this kind of stuff, and it just freaks you out, so you try to corral the baby, make sure it's breathing again, and then you kind of... You, You try to do the sort of immediately become the parent ninja. And then you go to the door, which of course needs a little WD-40 on there, which never really got it, because you're too tired to remember that you should have done it in the first place. And you start to turn the door, and a little micro squeak comes out, and it's like electric shock hits the baby. Ah! And you're like, oh, my God. oh my gosh. Sub, sub, sub. Bring the lefty. Let's go. And you have this. <laughs> so eventually, what you, you decide that against all of your best sort of interests, all the parenting books, your grandma, everything everybody told you, is that you begin to lay down with the baby. And you've just conceded that they win and that they need you right there. And the only way you're going to sleep is if your head shares the same pillow as this baby. <laughs> and you work through this process of the... I was very mathematical about mine. I was like, I was counting off seconds, like 10 seconds chunks of, like, time where I'd be patting the back, 10, 9, 8, and then I'd rest for one second after 10, so then I'd go, 1, 2, so I'd try to generate this sort of comfort with disappearing, and, and, and here's what began to happen. My own kids, even after they were probably ready to have me leave the room, became incredibly dependent on me, and the moment I would sort of step out of the room, me or my wife, is they would imagine, oh my gosh, my dad's been vaporized, he hates me. <laughs> <laughs> where did you go? I'm alone. I'm so abandoned. Oh my gosh. And you walk back in right here. Oh, and then then that's what you never do, evidently. Because then the baby's like, oh, see, I cry and scream and stuff. And then you come right back in there and you meet me here. This is so great. You're going to lie down again, aren't you? Or I'm going to scream again. Yeah, I'm going to lie down. (laughs) Now, is it possible that what I'm trying to do with my own kids is I'm trying to help them at some point to be able to sleep on their own without me being right next to them. In other words, I'm trying to do something in their own life that they may not totally understand that is for their own good, that involves me not being immediately at their arm's length in their presence. They do not understand, and they scream, and they say, why are you hiding? Aren't you my mom? Aren't you my dad? Aren't you supposed to be right here every time I'd say a peep? I'm still here. I'm just not at your arm's length. Our manifest presence to our own kids isn't the same because we're attempting to begin to grow them. There's something that we want to have happen in their life that they may not be able to experience unless we begin to sort of let them grow a little. The same kind of panic strickens us when we feel God sort of veil his presence a little bit it possible that God's work within us this sort of faith adventure we're talking about this life of adventure is about doing things that are not always comfortable. But maybe this is part of when we talk about having an adventurous faith that we're taking on things that we go okay I'm all for it Jesus but let's be prepared that it may not always be comfortable. If you want to turn to Jeremiah 29 if you brought your bible you can if not it'll be on screen in a second. But I want to give you a little background. This is taking place. This is the, the time of this writing takes place in what's known as the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians have come in. It's 586 B.C. And they've kicked all the, the Jews out of their homeland. They're scattered throughout all the ancient Near East. And th- I should say, this is actually a time in which God is, is sort of allowing, how should you say this? He's allowing the, the, his own people to trust in the gods of the Babylonians because that's who they've chosen to. And so he's kind of said, okay, I'm going to move out for a little bit. In fact, I'm going to move you guys out for a little bit and here's kind of the way this works they're also they begin to pray this prayer which you would imagine which is a prayer of god please rescue us We're kind of tired of being away from our home not real not really digging the babylonians and you should understand too that there's at least there's more ways to describe god's sort of presence his sort of manifest presence with his own people but one of them is or one of the ways to describe it is in three sort of words land meaning the, the land that god gave to them the seed meaning their lineage of their own people And blessing This sort of like the way God's presence is made known through the sort of the general well-being of the people. God? The blessing of air conditioning is now about to shower upon us, I guess. Now, in this case, because they're not in their land, they're experiencing God's, the absence of God's blessing, and they're wondering some pretty big questions. And here's what God tells them through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah speaks. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise, my good promise, to bring, um, bring you back to this place. Now, let's just really quickly. 70 years, you will experience this kind of pain that you're experiencing now. That's what he's saying to his people. And then he says the bumper sticker verse that everybody has and is ready, like tattooed and stuff like that, verse 11. For I know, I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope. And a future. Verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, a lot of us, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, about the whole notion of God's plans are great and good for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But those plans come after or are sort of lived out after 70 years of exile. And the intention, evidently, in those 70 years is to draw people to himself by them seeking him. And he says, I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There is some kind of recentering of people's hearts around Jesus, that could around God, that only could have been done had He exiled them when they felt His absence. And if I was to ask you, in in, ask most Christians at least, when was God most fully manifest, present in the world? When were you like, man? This is God is so clearly present. Christmas, Jesus. And the arrival of Jesus, sort of as he shows up, is, is really kind of surprising. I mean, Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? What is God like? Well, we kind of have to look at Jesus. And even his own arrival is described as sort of this divine hiding. I mean, you have to remember, this, this is Jesus is showing up in a very strange place, in a very strange time, without a lot of sort of fanfare. It says this in Philippians so you don't have to turn there. Philippians two six is this: Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His advantage. Other translations say to be grasped. That this sort of considering equality is not something to be grasped. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness. Other translation says that He emptied Himself. And the way that the way that God comes to us, His manifest presence in Jesus isn't at the halftime of the Super Bowl with helicopters and laser beams and light shows and a magic trick or whatever else he's going to do. Instead, he shows up in the strangest way. He shows up in a town of Bethlehem. And the way that that is announced is to shepherds whose testimony isn't even allowed in a court of law because they're considered unclean. And the first, at uh, Jesus' resurrection, the first person to see him, the first witnesses, women who also are, whose testimony isn't allowed in the court of law without a man to back them up, their father or their own husband to back up their testimony. Somehow or another, what Jesus is doing here seems to be kind of pretty veiled. That God's showing up seems to be not something where we just get this overwhelming presence of God everywhere in the world all at one moment. Instead, we get this veiled sort of experience of God. Now, Jesus never stopped being God at any moment, and yet he emptied himself. What does that mean? Last Father's Day, we had a... Um, there's a, the, a former professional soccer player. Goes, he's a member of our Mariners Church. He goes to the Irvine campus. And so we asked him, hey, would you help us shoot a video? We're going to do like a fun sort of sports video thing. And would you help us do it? And um, so he's, he agreed, which I was totally, I mean, he, he's just finished. He just retired a year or so ago from the LA Galaxy. And we're like, this is awesome. So we go out there. We start shooting this video. And I throw out to this guy. This, is, this by the way, he's like a two-time captain of the national team. He's been in two World Cups. He's like awesome. So I kind of try to throw out there as cool as I can, which I have zero coolness. Remember, I'm only 35% normal. (laughs) So I try to throw out, I just go, um, hey, uh, Chris, um, wondering, uh, some of us like play soccer on Friday mornings, and just, I don't know, if you wanted to come by, maybe hang out, you know, I don't know, if you wanted to, maybe not, so like, well, whatever, I was just saying, whatever, maybe. And I'm like, uh, and he gave me, he gave me, a, you know, he was very cool, but he was, he's just like, oh, yeah, maybe that'd be cool. And I'm like, I just got the blow off. He knew it. I'm an idiot. I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't have asked him. I'm, just, I'm an idiot. And he showed up one day. And again, the coolness factor just, uh, you know, just right out the window. It was like, hey, there's Chris. Hey, what's up, Chris? What's up? I was and we had one of those awkward exchanges where I was like this, and he was like this. And it was like, you know, we didn't know what to do, <laughs> you know, one of those moments. And we start, I'm like, hey, can I be on Chris's? T-? I mean, it would be cool if Chris and I were on the same. It's like, I don't care, but if we could be on the same team, that'd be cool. You know, <laughs> we weren't, but it was like, because I think he was like, no, whatever. So we divide up the teams, and it was immediately apparent that this guy was going to have to scale his game a little. <laughs> he was going to have to modify his ability to play with us. Because he starts out there, and he's like, God, this full move going, he's all whatever, and then he kind of realizes who he's playing against, and he's like, okay, boink. Hey, I'll jog over here, you know. Oh, you guys got me. That's awesome. You know, like, I'm like, oh, this is painful. And occasionally, and occasionally there'd be these moments where he's like, he would put a move on us and it was like, oh, right. He's, he's the national team guy. We're, we all played high school soccer. You know, it was like, okay. And he watched him do this stuff and he was incredibly gracious to us. He, he never came back, but that's the different story. He's a very busy guy. But at, there sort of, there's these moments where his sort of greatness showed up, and it was very clear of who he was. Oh, you're that guy. Same thing's true with Jesus. Oh, my gosh, you're walking on the water, or you're feeding 5,000 people, or you're healing people of some sort of disease. You're, you're calling out demons and throwing them into pigs, which are then running into water, which is the most hilarious moment to me. And the, what happened to our pigs? You know, like, this is what happens in the... This is the kind of stuff going on Jesus does where you go, oh, yeah. And yet he's hanging out with all these outcasts. He's not always making this big spectacle, and he kept telling people, hey, don't tell them what I just did. Hey, I just healed you. Just Don't mention it. Just let it kind of go. Just your your own life will be enough. There isn't this sort of big splash kind of moment. There's sort of this hiddenness about Jesus. And even the way he talks about his kingdom is sort of in these hidden terms. If you want to, turn to Matthew 13. You have your Bible. Now, Matthew 13 starts out by Jesus explaining that he's going to speak in parables, and he's going to speak in such a way (laughs) that So so that people won't understand. He's explaining, that he's going to say, I'm going to talk in these parables and people who have a particular kind of heart condition won't be able to understand this. They're just not going to be able to get it. I'm doing that on purpose. And and he starts telling these stories over and over and again about how his kingdom will sort of be made known and it's surprising, first the mode itself, the the parable mode is itself a hiddenness, a veiled sort of experience of God. But the messages even within them are veiled. Check this out. This is um, verse 31 says this. <clears throat> he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds come and perch in its branches. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've heard about faith like a mustard seed before. This is sort of a familiar you know, metaphor to you or, or analogy. But a mustard seed's really small. And there is this sort of, some scholars think about when they talk about mustards and mustard seeds and mustard plants and all this kind of stuff, what they're talking about is they're saying the mustard seeds kind of, and the mustard plant is kind of a troublesome plant because it's just one little seed it will take over a whole garden. In other words, that there's some kind of subversive nature to the, the mustard plant, that it isn't like, yay, mustard is in our garden. It's like, oh man, this thing's going to take over our garden and we didn't see it because it was so small. Jesus is saying the same thing about his kingdom. It will be this small thing that sort of explodes, subversive, but it's small. It doesn't, start with, it doesn't start with a tree. It starts with a seed. Next, skipping down to the next verse, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The other translation, the New American Standard has this translation that says, where the woman took leaven, yeast, and hid it in the dough that there's something about God's kingdom that at, on the one hand has these miraculous experiences and moments of powerful healings and you know, marriage restoration and addictions being broken, and we could say God's manifest presence is here among us and it's so good, and yet it's also hidden in and among the ordinariness of life. And maybe there's something to this because what we're wondering here at this moment is maybe some of what God does in our lives is apparently allow us to experience his veiled hiddenness. And that is normal. And we wonder, my gosh, have I done, have I, is there something wrong with me? Am I, is this not the way faith is supposed to work? It's normal. If you were to chronicle the life of every single sort of person in the Bible who had any impact for God in, the sort of in his own story, you would see their experience of profound loneliness and exile and wondering where God has been. These dark times in their own journey to follow even someone who's followed Jesus for a long time. And to ask them, tell me about some of the darker, lonelier times in your life. They'll all have them. No one will say, you know what? I've never had a lonely time since I followed Jesus. If they're a sincere follower of Jesus, there is something about which God does in us. The adventurous kind of life of faith in which God does sort of veil his presence from us from time to time. Even Jesus cried out from the, on the cross. My God, have you abandoned me? So we're normal. What do we do? First thing is this. There are times in which in our own lives, there are things that have shown up in our own lives that we have allowed to be there that are creating distance between us and God. Not because God wants to be away from you. That's already been sort of handled on the cross. But because we actually don't realize we're choosing to be away from him. We're actually running pretty far. It's like this. I don't know if, you know, I, I remember when I, this is uh, 13 or 14 years ago. I can't remember what point I started my premarital counseling with my with my own, you know, then fiance, my wife. And I remember we were having the counseling and the, the guy, the counselor at the time goes, well, you know, um, every time you guys have a disagreement or an argument, that's an opportunity to grow. <laughs> I just went. At the time, I was like, wow, that's really awesome. And now being married, I'm like. Sometimes we just fight We're just, they don't really, We don't really have the like, growth moment Like that was wonderful Do you feel it's growing? Do you feel it growing now? <laughs> I feel it growing I mean it's like, it's like man It's just brutal and we just kind of have to acknowledge that Hey I was acting stupid and insecure and I was frustrated and tired And I said some things I regret, whatever But in the moments leading up to a fight An argument, a disagreement, whatever you want to say In those moments leading up to and out of There's all this sort of like shortness How's your day? Fine How's everything going? Good why aren't you looking at my face? I don't know. You know, like, like there's all this kind of like tension right there that you can feel. It builds. And there's, there's something that usually the responsible party is sort of placing between themselves and the other person. I don't want to talk to you. Usually because I did something stupid and I'm going to have to deal with it. But I don't want to talk to you right now. Sometimes this happens with us and God. I'm going to have to deal with this, aren't I, if I actually confront if I start talking to you, aren't, aren't I, Jesus? Some of us are experiencing God's hiddenness, his veiledness. Maybe because there's something within us that's saying, God, get away. Maybe there's a time for you that needs and requires a little bit of confession. Others of us in here, for the first time maybe, are accepting the normalness of this kind of season. That maybe God isn't always forever right next to us at arm's length in our very close presence. So how do we respond with this feeling? I would say a couple of things. One is we have to speak honestly with God. That we can't do the christianese, you know, flowery, over the top, sugar coating, God, I know that you are so awesome and wonderful and always present and right here with me and, and but I just want to say that I just I'm kind of not really feeling it exactly in this moment, but I know you're so good. I mean We have to say like the psalmist does. God doesn't require us to have perfect words, but he does require us to be honest with him. And I think we have to say things like, God, I'm pretty angry. Aren't you supposed to be the savior? And are you you hiding? Yeah, I really need you right now. And I feel like you're pretty distant. And I don't feel like I want to play any games here. I'm just really tired of me feeling your distance. And I need you to come meet me closer. That's a sincere prayer, an honest prayer. That's a prayer of intimacy. What I want to do is this. I want us to kind of spend a moment, you and Jesus. I want you to close your eyes. And this message doesn't have a ton of like, here's four practical steps to doing whatever. I just want you to acknowledge that maybe you're normal for a moment. And I'll walk you through an experience. Why don't you close your eyes? Jesus, some of us in this room have need to confess some stuff that we have placed between us and you. Lord, we ask you to search our own hearts that that stuff might be revealed. We confess those things to you. Maybe we're running away. And so we feel your absence. We feel your veiled presence. Jesus and others of us in this place are feeling your absence and wondering why that's so. And if there's any indication from the scripture about how to respond, it is that God's moving away is so that we would continue to seek him in some capacity. And the only response for us, Jesus, is to say, I feel lonely and I need you because that's honest. Some of us have that prayer. I don't feel your sort of manifest presence in my everyday moment of my life and I'm feeling like maybe you've forgotten me and so would you show up. Maybe that's your prayer. If you in this room, I'm gonna ask you to do something kind of courageous. If you are experiencing this sort of veiled experience of God's presence in your life, and you're wondering, where did you go, God? Would you allow something to happen, which is, would you stand up? Just right where you are, you keep your eyes closed, you'd stand up. And would you allow the community here to kind of remind you that you're not alone? Even this experience of being alone from God. There's some of us standing up now. This isn't judging. Remember, this is normal. The experience of being, feeling sort of alone. The experience of feeling sort of in exile. This is part of the adventure of faith, and it is not comfortable. It is painful. Is there anybody else who wants to stand? A couple folks standing. We can continue to stand. Why don't you do this? If you're if you're next to someone, you just heard their chair kind of, you know, flip up. You could hear them kind of stand. Would you just put a hand on their shoulder, on their arm? You don't have to stand and hug them. You don't have to, do, but just let them know that they're not alone, that we can experience this sort of pain and isolation, but we don't have to be alone in our own body. Maybe in some way you can embody the, the presence of God for someone who's experiencing that exile, that sort of loneliness. Does anybody else want to stand? You just go, I need to know that I'm not alone, that I'm normal. This is part of the experience of faith. You want to have the community of people and gathered here be able to sort of let you know that you're not alone. If that That's you. You can stand. Your normal is okay. Anybody else? If there are people that are around you that are standing that don't have someone kind of putting their hands on them, would you kind of take it on yourself to just know that's a time to sort of reach behind you or around you and let them not stand by themselves? That in some way we enact a sort of picture of community that no one has to be on their own? Good. Lord Jesus, is a community, we pray that in times of great desperation and loneliness that you would show up, that your manifest presence would be made known in very real and powerful ways. Lord, your kids cry out and they say, I need you. And God, this is a group of people who are turning to seek you and if only to, to, be, know, to be sort of made aware that they're not alone in this community, God. We thank you. And we know, God, that you love us and while we don't understand you and that faith The adventure of faith is one that is not always comfortable or clear. We trust that you're good and that you hear your kids who are crying out to you. So Jesus, as we respond in the words of the songs and in the prayer, in the holiness of this moment and in this space, we acknowledge you are everywhere present and we ask you to show up powerfully, Jesus. It is in your name that we pray, amen. Hey, would you do this? Would everybody in the room just go ahead and stand? In so doing, we acknowledge the normalness of our faith that is at times experienced loneliness and veiled hiddenness of God. And we will respond together as we sing and continue to pray and worship.